So yeah, it turns out Fortifieds are still a hard sell. We offered our guests, you know, a $300 Madeira and they uh, roundly kind of said no, even though it was more of the, the chocolatey, exciting style that they really wanted to try. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Vint Podcast. We have a really special episode today because Vint just announced our second fundraise, our seed round, a $5 million venture capital round, which is a really big deal for our company and for our investors, bringing on a ton of awesome new partners from the VC world. And we actually have one of them on today representing Montage Ventures. We have Matt Murphy, who is their general partner. And Montage actually led this funding round, this oversubscribed round, like I said, $5 million, which will really allow us to extend it into the future to grow our product offerings, to give us some runway as we grow and scale, and also just invest in our team and our product overall. So we have a really excellent conversation with Matt, who will share a little bit more about their philosophy at Montage and maybe a little of what they saw in Vint when they made that investment. But Billy, we also wanted to spend a little bit of time hearing something about a common experience that I think some of us who are really into wine have when we share wine with other people. And that's that sometimes you bring out those special bottles and it just doesn't hit. You had that experience <laughs> with Madeira recently. Yeah. And so I've, in studying for this Fortified exam, I have my basically test the the test company and a lot of people have been like oh you know a lot of americans don't drink fortifieds and i was like ah that's probably just because they haven't had great ones so i had a, was on a mission this weekend to share some some nice ones with my friends i'm gonna include a 1981 malmsey madeira a 1985 vindu natural from mari and a few others in between and yeah it, <laughs> it was met with a tepid response to, to say the least i tried to intersperse them at the right times of the meal but it's interesting because we do have investors in our community ask us if we're going to have fortified collections. We have even teammates who are like, when are you going to do a sherry collection? I was like, when people really start drinking a lot of sherry. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was an interesting, interesting time. We've mentioned in the past about how the whiskey market might drive the sherry market because of the use of like Oloroso sherry casks. I know you kind of have a bullish prediction on that. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, I think they even use some pheno casks sometimes as well. But yeah, no, I, I think I think Sherry is just an under misunderstood and underrated product. I think a lot of people in the U.S. look at it as just a sweet wine. And it's such an interesting process driven wine that takes a lot of thought and care to make. And I, I think some ways are doing a good job of bringing it back as a food wine. Same thing with Madeira. Or it's just a cooking product. Like I, I feel like several of my family members wouldn't even identify Sherry as like something that you drink with a meal. As opposed yeah. to just like, oh, dry, dry cooking sherry. <laughs> yeah. And another thing like that is like Marsala. Like we only think about that as cooking. We don't think of it as mm -hmm. the wine that it once was. So anyway, that was just a, a fun little aside from the weekend. You know, we had a, a bunch of sparkling wines that were all resounding hits. But yeah, Fortifieds are still a hard sell here in Los Angeles to at least my friend group. Yeah, I was talking with someone recently who, you know, was kind of meant we were, we were having a discussion about how people will say things like, oh, I didn't like white wine or I didn't like red wines or I don't like Chardonnay, like give me anything but Chardonnay. And then you give them like a Blanc de Blanc, you know, from Champagne and they love it. And say, like, oh, it's Chardonnay. So sometimes you can, you can sneak things in. Yeah. Fortifieds are tough to sneak in. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would like a Pinot Noir. Here is a 40 year old. <laughs> right. 
Well, heavily oxidized sweet wine. Maybe you could serve um, like, I don't know, like vanilla bean ice cream. Well, we had that. That's I had everything ready. I had yeah, we had ice cream there. I had like even like PX Sherry. I had another Rutherglen Muscat that was really old that's made to go, you know, drink or put on ice cream. Like everybody's like put on ice cream, sure, and then everybody's sure. like, nah. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? Yeah, <laughs> do you, fine. Do you have I, any I sprinkles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, sprinkles. fine. We we love these. They're gonna last forever since they're even open. So we'll drink them. But I don't want to bury the lead here about the fundraise. It was. Really exciting time for us. Brady came on just after our first fundraise. But yeah, no, this this was really excited. Like you said, it was led by Montage Ventures. We had a, a bunch of other really interesting companies participate in the round. Like you said, it was oversubscribed. Goat Rodeo was one of them. Fintech Ventures, Great Oaks, Venture Capital, Plug and Play. A bunch of these really exciting individual and companies. And what I was talking to you a little bit about offline was... Before I joined kind of a true startup that had raised a couple of rounds, I didn't really understand the process and how important having a lead investor was. But that's one reason we brought Montage on is basically once you have somebody come on and a company set the terms and really put that first big chunk forward, it turns out, you know, everybody else who's really interested in the company kind of finds that as a validation point and is willing to kind of hop on and join the cause. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and it's great to have firms like Fintech Ventures and Irvent who were in our last round, you know, come on and, and follow on with this one too. So I think it's always uh, positive when you can continue to bring your partners in on subsequent rounds and and they continue to show faith in you as you grow. And we've certainly grown a lot since a year ago, I guess, November 21, when we announced our $1.7 million pre-seed. But yeah, the seed round is going to uh, give us a lot of runway to do some really cool things for our investors over the next 18 to 36 months, I think. Yeah. That last time, one of the core focuses of our raise was growing the team, which we did. Um, like mm-hmm. you said, it, it from November last year, I guess we started raising, I think it closed late summer, early Yeah. Um, I think we had four employees at the close Mm -hmm. and six when we announced publicly because I was number six in November of last year. And and this year on my work anniversary, I was reflecting on the fact that we now have 12 employees um, at the firm. And so it's uh, yeah, it's great to be able to add talent to both the tech and business side over the last year. And and this will only accelerate some of that, too. Yeah. And our our community has grown over 7,500 people, you know, with our mailing list constantly growing. I think that's closer to 10,000 now. And then we've had over 40 offerings. So it's it's really exciting. And it's interesting to really think about, or it's exciting, I guess, really to think about what we can really continue to do to, in terms of growing the team, but making the platform you know better and better for our users and what we have in store for 2023. So excited. And also we confirmed yesterday that we'll be able to have somebody from Goat Rodeo come on in, in the new year to also talk a little bit about the round and, and interest in us. So yeah, pretty excited for that. Like you said, I, or maybe you haven't mentioned yet, Go Radio really focuses on beverage focused startups. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Some awesome partners. And and I think Matt will be able to elaborate a little bit more on the value that VCs are able to bring to early stage companies and the value proposition, not being just in the capital that comes in, but in the partnership and the network effects and, and these kinds of things. And so we're certainly excited to hear from Matt Murphy, who is the general partner at Montage Ventures. And we just hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, Matthew, great to have you on. Likewise, thanks for having me today. 
Yeah, I think this is a really exciting episode getting to, you know, talk with someone who has invested in Vint as a company and really we see who we see as a partner going forward. Excited for you to be able to share a little bit about how you came on to Vint and what the experience has been like getting to know us as a company and would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you guys do at Montage Ventures first. Definitely. So I'll jump in and, and share a little bit about Montage, and then I'll kind of tell you my story and, and parlay that into how we met yeah. the Vint team. So Montage is an early stage venture capital firm based at a Menlo Park. Early stage meaning we go very early in the journey of, of a startup, right? From pre-seed capital to seed capital to seed extension to kind of pre-series A, we really want to back great founders looking to disrupt large industries, right? Using technology, using innovations to modernize these sectors for the future. And so we have three core areas that we deploy capital into. One is evolution of financial services, right? Some call it fintech. The second one is the evolution of healthcare, right? Really the consumerization and technology coming into digital health. And then the third area is really around e-commerce enablement, right? So building next generation software platforms and technologies to help bring e-commerce to the next level. All three of those are really unified for us by being very high margin software enabled products, high margin north of 60%. These companies can get to profitability if they need to, at least on a unit economics basis and can really use their capital as efficiently as possible to build software that's going to help bring innovation through. We are investing out of our third fund at this point in time. It's a $75 million fund. We typically write checks, usually in the one to two million dollar ranges. We'll lead or co-lead or build syndicates or join syndicates. Primarily in that seed stage is really our sweet spot. But we will go earlier for for great founders that we truly believe in. That's awesome. And Montage is leading this round of funding for Vent. Can you just maybe explain to our listeners who who aren't familiar with that space what that means to lead a round and what kind yeah. of maybe like how is the thesis for a company different? for the lead versus maybe someone who comes in later in the round. Yeah, just what was your conviction to take that on? Definitely, and I'll, I'll start off with, with how I met Nick. And so typically in Montage, we usually meet founders through great founders that we've built relationships with. Those can be founders that we've invested in and helped them hand in hand or sat on their boards or wrote checks in and, and really became a value-added investor. Or they could be entrepreneurs that we had one discussion with. And may not be a, a fit for our firm to invest in their company, but you know they respected us. We respected them, and that's exactly the case here. Where I met a gentleman by the name of, of Andrew Kim, who runs a prop tech company called Shares, enabling you to kind of buy micro shares within properties, and really smart entrepreneur. We had already made an investment kind of in a similar space, and so it wasn't a fit for us. But he had met Nick through some mutual connections and decided to introduce us, partly because, you know, one, we're investing in in new emerging fintech companies. But then two, my, you know, hobby slash passion is wine. And I started a, a wine label up in Napa back in 2014. And so Andrew and I had had a long conversation just about that. Wine is a passion of his. And so when he met Nick and heard what he was building at Vint, he thought it was a no-brainer for the two of us to connect. Montage, we have a, a thesis around active asset management. And so 
right now our bull market, our long bull run of 12 plus years has officially ended. Some will say we're in a recession, others will question it. I believe we are. You know, rising interest rates, rising consumer debt, basically index fund model approaches to the stock market are not working as well as they once did before. And so we really built a thesis around kind of the way of playing the bull market was to do a robo advisor philosophy. Robo advisor means modern portfolio theory, basically picking a mix of stocks and bonds and, and index funds and mutual funds, and and just riding out those indices. And, and historically, you'll get you know eight to eight to twelve percent returns consistently. But in times of a bear market with rising interest rates and rising inflation and unemployment, you need a more active managed approach, right? I don't want to say stock picking by any means, but you definitely need a platform or a person that is actively managing your investments and and really keeping an eye on a day-to-day basis. And so we made a few investments against this theme of active management versus passive management, who were actually in the platform approach, right? Building investment platforms to go out and give access to alternative investments. And then with Vint, we fell in love with the idea of actually bringing and democratizing access to wine and spirits, which historically have beat the S&P by a factor of 2x consistently over the last 100 years, but have been inaccessible to many, right? Because you typically have to go to the, the auctions or the brokerages and, and buy the actual wine, right? Or buy the spirits and take possession of them. When I heard the story of what Nick and the Vint team were building around working with the SEC to securitize collections and 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 offer those via micro shares to broader the broader investment landscape right broader individuals that are out there that they could invest via you know their their individual you know SEP IRA or an individual account or through their advisor it was a no brainer right in a previous life i had invested in a company called fundrise which is another kind of dc maryland based company that was democratizing real estate right and and offering fractional shares into real estate so it was a no brainer when i heard the pitch I had an investment thesis around it saw the traction that the team had super impressed with the team as well and so we decided to lead the round and and just to answer your question on that brady that usually means you set the terms of the round, right? You set the price of what the shares are going to be purchased at. You you work with the founder and set the size and amount of capital they want to raise. You set the terms of what you know that investment gets investors, how much dilution the founders will take, uh, what the employee stock option pool is going to look like. You work with the lawyers collectively, right? Between the company and the lead investor to document all of that. And then build a syndicate of other folks that want to come in on those terms that were established. And so leading an investment, you know, you have a lot of conviction, right? That this is an investment that you want to put your your stamp on, personal brand, firm brand, and then go out to your network and basically say, hey, I'm super excited about this for these reasons. You write a full investment thesis. You offer it up to your co-investors, your limited partners, your friends in the industry, and then they're betting on your reputation, right? And and your underwriting capabilities to come in and join you. And, And lucky enough, this round was oversubscribed, right? We went out trying to raise $4 million. We ended up having demand well over five. We capped it at five million, which gives the company a great amount of capital to to achieve the the mission and goals over the next you know twenty four to thirty six months before they'll need to come out and raise another round. 
That's awesome. Yeah, well, we definitely want to dig into some of your wine background as well. But we're excited to partner, you know, on, on the investment side and, and to have you guys along for the ride. It's really nice to have a GP who knows the wine space and, under, you know, has kind of lived in various different parts of the wine space. What's it been like starting your own winery? Let's dive in a little bit on the wine side. Maybe we can come back to the finance side. Yeah. And and I think kind of the story of my evolution, right, plays into the wine side. So maybe I'll hit that first, right? So sure. it comes yeah. full circle. So I, I grew up, and when I say I grew up, I was an intern and then got a full-time job at a company called E-Trade back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so, you know, I saw the dot-com crash firsthand at a broker dealer, right? An online broker dealer watching, you know, trade skyrocket and then trades plummet as it was not fun to be investing in the stock market at that point in time. At E-Trade, I was, I was lucky enough to kind of grow into a position where I ended up running all advertising, media, and branding, and sponsorships globally, which was amazing. I spent six years there, worked with amazing folks, a ton of mentors that I still keep in touch with the E-Trade network, right, is, is literally proliferated throughout venture capital, throughout other startups. We, we bump into each other consistently, and it was just a great team of folks that were democratizing access to investing in the stock market, right? Before E-Trade, it was done on the telephone. E-Trade brought it on to the internet, which seemed so you know obvious, but was not at that point in time. And, and our goal was to build a brand and, and really increase awareness that you, know, you could invest on your own via a brokerage account into stocks and take control of your future, right? And so... We had some of the best Super Bowl commercials of all time. Still to this day, E-Trade creates amazing commercials. But we built a brand that really stood for democratization and access, right? And then we built incredibly powerful trading tools on top for folks that you know wanted to build a, a profession out of it. That was an amazing journey. Six years, learned the ropes, but really fell in love with financial services and, and, and really tech-enabled financial services early in my career. I was then fortunate enough to be the chief marketing officer at Chegg in the education space, which if you don't know what Chegg is, Chegg started out basically renting textbooks to college students, became the number one platform for students to access educational materials. Today is a public company and is really helping majority of collegiate students around the country just, you know, save, save time, save money, get smarter. And that was an amazing journey to be on. Again, democratization of the space, right? Really coming in and saying, hey, textbooks are 2000 bucks for a student per year. That's almost inaccessible for most folks. How do we build awareness of this category with us as the key brand in it and you know ended up becoming a, a major story there which was great after i left chegg went back to my my roots of financial services and was a part of a company called bling nation that was democratizing mobile payments using nfc as a technology we iterated that business into lemon wallet it was kind of the art of the pivot which we could probably have a whole other conversation around how to pivot a business the goods the bads and the ugly but we pivoted Lemon Wallet into a mobile wallet that ended up becoming one of the early Bitcoin wallets. And you can read about it in Digital Gold, the book, talking about the journey. One of the co-founders, Wences Casares, is, is noted as patient, patient zero. Nikki Malka runs Ribbit Capital now. I was fortunate enough to be on that co-founding team there as well. And we really just you know, help 
helped broaden access to cryptocurrencies. After we had sold a portion of that business off to LifeLock and spun another portion out to Zappo, I was recruited by a large Chinese conglomerate called Renren, which originally was known as the Facebook of China, right? Facebook was banned from China via the Great Firewall. Joe Chen and James Liu, two just amazing entrepreneurs, saw an opportunity as they were finishing up their education at Stanford's GSB Business School to go back to China, build a social network within just the Chinese firewalls that occurred there to create access, right? And, and networking amongst collegiate students to start and then broadened out to the broader population. They took that company public in 2011. And, and Joe Chen, who has amazing just vision, kind of saw the future and said, hey, we've done very well in China. We, we took a lot of money off the table with our IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. Time to globalize this business. We need to figure out what Ren Ren over the next 10 years looks like. And so I was fortunate enough to get recruited by Joe and work directly with him to build out businesses in the United States, which is where I was based. He wanted to build out things in the social, education, and financial services space, which all aligned with my background as a operator and founder. Uh, and so we ended up just building amazing companies in, in the prop tech world, in the social world, in the logistics world. All of those businesses are still running today under the public entity. But we stumbled across this thing called venture capital, and we started writing checks off our balance sheet. And so the first company we invested in, we were all operators through and through, right? None of us were venture capitalists. But the first company we invested in was a small company called Social Finance, otherwise known as SoFi which is now a public company, helped democratize kind of student loans and, and helping students refi their loans. And then from there, building broader financial relationships. And so we were fortunate enough to invest in SoFi in the super early days and, and really build our reputation on the backs of, of Mike Cagney and the great team over there. And then we backed Fundrise and Aspiration and Lending Home and Motif and a ton of great companies really shaking up financial services, right? So that really helped me build a thesis, a reputation going from a founder operator into a venture capitalist. We actually did so well at Renren, we struck this thing called the 1940 Act with the SEC that said, if assets that you own less than 40% of are worth more than 40% of your public value, right, your public stock value, then you either have to report on the earnings every quarter of all of those assets, meaning SoFi and Lending Home and Fundrise and Motif and Aspiration, or you have to spin it out, right? Which we chose to spin it out because none of our private company CEOs wanted their earnings reported to the public markets. As we spun that out over 18 months, I realized that I loved being a venture investor and, and working with talented founders on a daily basis. I had a blast being an operator for most of my career, but you know the calling was there. And so I joined a friend, Todd Kimmel, who had launched Montage Ventures in 2014 as a solo GP. And was looking to, in 2018, go to a second fund and, and find a partner. And we ended up working working together on Fund 2 and now Fund 3. But going back to why I started a winery, I started a winery back in 2014 after we had sold Lemon Wallet. And most of the Lemon Wallet code base and application, when LifeLock purchased it, they shut it down. And they just kind of took it and, and, and morphed it into their experience. And all that hard work and passion that went into building Lemon Wallet was gone, you know, and I, I had had my second child at that point in time. And I kind of looked in the mirror and I was like, you know what? 
I want to build something that that lives on for the next 20 to 30 years, right? Which that's one thing we're doing at Montage Ventures. But maybe I was I was sleep deprived. I don't know what else was going on. I said, you know what? I want to start a winery as well. That just sounds great. My grandfather and I used to make wine when I was a young child and had a lot of great memories doing that and wanted to do something with my kids. You know, there's the the old adage that says if you want to make a million dollars in the wine business, you got to start with 10 million, right? You got to start with a big fortune. Very true. Very hard to run, run a winery, especially in times as you go through COVID and, and deal with kind of distribution challenges and woes. But it's been an amazing experience, right? We're you know going to be coming up in, in 24 on our 10th vintage, which is fantastic. Basically, the story is called Unwritten. We make amazing boutique wines, partnering up with some great growers throughout Napa Valley, whether it's the Llewellyn uh, Ranch, which is one of the oldest ranches in all of St. Helena, or it's working with UC Davis on their Oakville Station property which is literally next door to Tokalon. I'll, I'll tell you the story about that in a second. Or working with David Abreu up on his Los Posadas vineyard up on Howe Mountain. The goal is literally every vintage is unwritten. Its story is unwritten. I didn't think you know I'd be starting a winery when I was 34 with a few of my friends. Life's unwritten, right? Do, take take it by the horns and, and do what you want with it. And so it's been a great journey. You know, we have an amazing wine club. We have a, a great tasting experience in downtown St. Helena. We work with amazing folks in the wine industry, and it's it's just a really fun hobby that's turned into a business. And people like the wine, which is great, right? We produce great wine. We always joke, you know, if, if the winery doesn't work, Plan B is we have a lot of wine that we love drinking. Good thing it's working, and people are buying the wine, and we're in the French Laundry. And we have some great distribution partners up and down the East Coast in London, as well as California and Nevada. Well, I must have walked by. I was just grabbing a sandwich in St. Helena a couple days okay. ago. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it's a great, great town. Yeah, no, it's it was cool. My my girlfriend had visited before, but she had never been to that area. So I was like, well, we'll spend a little bit on our way down. We kind of drove all the way from the top from Anderson Valley down to Tokalon, actually, to go tasting. So this Oakville Station property is is pretty cool. So back in the, I want to say it was the 1920s, a bunch of local farmers in the Napa Valley area all decided to donate small portions of their land to UC Davis purely for research purposes because they were fighting a lot of insects and diseases and they wanted the, the university, the institution to really work on you know solving this massive problem that could literally wipe out the wine country. And so little did they know, the the actual vineyards they were donated, land they all collectively donated, is some of the most prized land in all of Napa Valley, right? The Tokalon region, which is there's been books written about it, right? It makes some of the, you know, the most exquisite wines, you know, ever produced in Napa. And so we've been fortunate enough to work with with UC Davis and students farm the land and our winemaker, Mark Porbisky, has an amazing relationship with the institution to create, you know, beautiful wines from that piece of property. Nice. Well, I want to come back. I think we can wrap up with the wine because I can go on with that forever. But going back a little bit to your path into venture capital work, how does building brands and being more on the advertising side of things initially rather than purely financial focus help you, you know, kind of add value in your your various venture capitalist endeavors? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's becoming more and more relevant these days. When we are looking at investing in a founder and a company, the founder is interviewing me just as much as I'm interviewing her or him. It's a journey, right? I mean, it's a relationship. A lot of these relationships last for 10 years, right? So just to back up on kind of how a venture fund works, right? We go out and raise money from our limited partners, which can be high net worth individuals, family offices, foundations, pension funds, endowments, you know, strategics, corporations. We then build a fund instrument that lasts 10 years and has two kind of one-year incremental extensions. And so our goal is to basically 3x on a minimum, the, the money that investors give us right over a 10-year period of time. And so if someone gives us $100 million, my goal is to return back $300 million at least in that fund if I'm going to build credibility and be able to raise another fund from investors. And so when we go out and find founders, it's not a two-year journey with the founders, right? We don't just work them for two years and say, okay, we're done or okay, time to tell your company. We go in it for the long haul because we know as operators and founders ourselves that to drive massive change using technology in an industry, it takes time. It's a journey, right? And it's it's a minimum of a five-year journey, if not a 10-year journey. And so founders interview us, right? Because it's a marriage in a lot of ways, just as much as we're doing diligence on, on them and their backgrounds and, and their vision and what they want to create and what they've achieved so far. And so being able to come at a new opportunity and evaluate it not just from a financial perspective, because in the earliest days of investing in a startup, right at the seed stages, there's not much data, right? There's the cohorts aren't that old, right? As you look at kind of what the business has proved in like day zero to maybe day 360, right? A lot of these companies aren't even a year old at that point in time. You don't have much to evaluate, right? And so financial models and forecasts over the next three years don't really mean anything unless you can execute tomorrow. And so really understanding the core problem the team is trying to tackle, the market size, and more importantly, the addressable market size, like what can actually be innovated upon, and then what is that customer journey, and really following the money right throughout that journey. Are you saving the customer's money? Are you helping the customers make money? What value are you providing within that journey? You, you need to understand it from a marketing perspective, right? Or from a sales perspective as well, because you can't just rely on the numbers. And, and the other side as you're underwriting, and we underwrite founders, right? There's some investors that underwrite markets, others that underwrite founders. We're in it and backing founders through their journey and we'll be their champion till the end. We've realized that when we go out and back great companies with founders that we don't fully believe in, never works out, right? But if we can grab back a great founder, the company they may be working on today may iterate into something else. But as long as we continue to believe in them and empower them with the right people, the right resources, they will do whatever it takes to win. And so underwriting people is really fundamental. And so having an understanding of, of just what makes people tick, right? How do you get people to act and react? There's a lot of marketing components within that, right? That as you build a brand and build a product offering and build core messaging, there's a lot of similarities that flow through. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was going to lead into that later a little bit with the, the founders versus company because 
there are some folks who think that sometimes the opportunity is just so great with the market or the the idea alone that it'll work out. But I, I think your model makes a lot of sense. And, and and you could argue that, right? And there's some great firms like Sequoia Capital that's a market-driven investor. And you know, most would argue they're one of the top two, if not number one, venture firm in existence ever created. And if you have an amazing network of operators and the market is big enough, you can put someone, you know, incredibly talented in that role to drive it forward. We're of the likes that, you know, great founders can create and find interesting, big, huge markets and build, you know, just category defining businesses. And so it's two different schools of thought, right? Both work and there's countless examples of how each work. We just love backing great, talented folks. You guys also kind of have this goal of addressing and and helping to shift the maybe you call it like the financial paradigm, especially among these kind of consumer fintech products as well. It sounds like what do you see that paradigm as right now, and can you give any insight into how you're projecting the way that we engage some of these financial products changing over the next five to ten, five to fifteen years? Definitely. It's a great question. And it's a big question. So I'll try to unpack it in, in kind of a few different ways and give you some, some real examples, right? So we believe that how consumers and businesses interact with money, that relationship is completely evolving and changing, right? Um, previously, it was institutions that would dictate you know, how you interact with money. It could be how you access good investments. It could be, you know, the interest that you're paid on your, your cash sitting in a bank account to how you can access capital from a lending perspective. Now with kind of the rise of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and web 2 2.5, 3.0, however you want to decipher it, the way people interact with money and the way companies are built to change that interaction is, is evolving, right? And it's evolving across from a legislative perspective, as well as purely just from a democratization perspective. And so one area that we at Montage have built a strong reputation in is how people interact with real estate. Real estate is typically the biggest purchase a consumer makes in their lives of buying a home. Renting an apartment or a home is also the biggest check people typically write each month. And what's interesting there is, you know, the the way that people are underwritten from a rent perspective with security deposit has not transformed much whatsoever. The way that consumers buy a house, right, and and literally get underwritten on a thirty year mortgage has been the same way historically, right, for the last you know sixty plus years. And so we believe that there, that area needs to be democratized. One from an access perspective, right? The ability to access home ownership or, or be able to access just housing um, to two, right? The ability to build a home, renovate a home, buy a home, various different things. And so we've made quite a few investments in great founders and great teams that are looking to really shake up how people can buy a home, right? Whether it's house that's doing a co-investment model or it's easy knock that's enabling homeowners to release equity. The average home equity loan right now, it takes like 90 days to 120 days to get underwritten by a bank that holds the first mortgage on your house. And for them to release equity out of your home, even if you own like 90% of your home, 
still takes forever, right? Because there's so many intricacies and historical ways of underwriting a consumer and your income levels and your debt to income levels and your cash flow that it just doesn't meet the way that kind of modern consumers live, right? If folks are in this kind of shared economy, right? If they're Uber drivers or if they have their own consulting businesses, they don't really get a W-2, right? And most financial institutions underwrite you on a W-2, right? That lists out kind of your income that's received from your company. And that whole world is transforming, right? And so the underwriting language needs to transform. The end products need to transform as well. You know, just back to, to SoFi that I talked about earlier, right? I mean, SoFi realized that student loan debt is, is so inhibiting against most folks that are graduating, right? With 20 grand in debt, 30 grand in debt, in some cases over $100,000 in debt, just to get an education, they then go out into the workforce and they want to get a credit card. Well, you're, you probably even don't have a FICO score or it's not looking that great because your debt to income ratio is you know, pretty exhaustive there. And so how do you get people with student loan debt into the financial ecosystem, right? How do you help them get a mortgage? How do you help them get an auto loan? How do you help them get a personal loan? How do you refi their student loans so their payment each month is actually affordable, right? So there, there's so many different nuances that today's economy is creating for consumers. The financial institutions have not evolved quick enough, right, to meet that ever-changing way that people are interacting with money. And so that's why we're so bullish on on fintech and and prop tech and insure tech as a way of just bringing new thinking, leveraging technology into how consumers and businesses interact with money. Yeah, I resonate a lot with the the issue with mortgage underwriting. The last house that I purchased, I was coming off of a stint of 1099 work. And, you know, I could show six, nine, 12 months of the same basic amount of funds that were coming in from some consulting work. And yeah, they split there. They don't consider it. They're like, well, it's too unstable as if you couldn't get laid off tomorrow from your W2 job, which is, exactly. you know, all over tech, for instance right now That's so right. it's just like a real, really bizarre perceived reality i think from from some of these lenders that you know 1099 is inherently less stable or you know than w2 well, just, works interesting and look at look at the fico score right i mean the fico score has been right. around and you have like a long a, time yeah and or even that you have a really high score that you have a really high score you pay back all your loans but then oh well you have 1099 income Really bizarre. That's right. Well, the FICO score looks looks historically, but what if you're on the rising trend? What if you got a great new job? Or what if you know something positive happened and you're on the upward swing? You still can't get underwritten, right? Because it's all historically looking in reverse. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the entire... And we haven't even seen you know, much innovation occur on the FICO score. I mean, we've seen cash flow underwriting. Plaid has really been a huge enabler just to provide instant read access, right, into people's bank accounts to figure out where they're spending, how they're spending, what the bills look like, right, what the income looks like. But we're still in the early innings there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of, like, obviously, the, the process of financing real estate is kind of in flux, but real estate itself is, and fractional shares are like in Fundrise, an alternative asset. Mm -hmm. where, where do you see the alternative asset space kind of progressing and how do you see it playing in the, in the modern day portfolio of typical investors? 
Yeah. So I, I think the, the, the awareness that alternative assets are, you know, an incredibly important part to any diversified portfolio. We're, we're still, you know, in the early innings of just getting awareness on that spectrum, right? And so I think the first major category that people realize, you know, that that provides, you know, really strong income or, or appreciation is real estate, right? The ability to invest in real estate historically was you buy a property outright, right? Or you form an LLC with a few other folks and collectively you buy that property and it could be a commercial property, could be a multifamily residential property. It could be, you know, a home that you rent, right? Single family rental. But, you know, that takes a lot of cash. A lot of times those were fully funded via cash and not really financed via a loan. This idea of fractionalization, right? It started out with stocks, right? Where you could fractionalize a share of stock. And so you could buy $10 worth of Apple, whereas historically you had to buy one share of Apple. And that one share could be, you know, at a peak, like hundreds of dollars. And it was just purely inaccessible to the to the everyday investor because they didn't have hundreds of dollars to buy that share. But if you can buy, you know, $50 worth, right, and have a fraction of it, that makes a lot of sense. And so it provided more access to the broader investment landscape. We're seeing the same thing with real estate. That was one of the early areas that got fractionalized via via the Jobs Act and really provided access to individuals who said, hey, I want to own some commercial real estate. I've seen a lot of people make a lot of money, you know, become financially free by having income come through on this. But I just don't have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to buy these properties. And I also don't know much about how to manage these properties. And so you have platforms like a Fundrise or a Peer Street or a Yield Street or a Lending Home that have really come in and said, hey, we'll be the platform. We'll go out and source this, these, these real estate assets, and then we'll put them into a fund structure or a REIT structure and then offer shares in those REITs right, to, to consumers or individuals that want to buy those shares on our platforms, right? We haven't seen much innovation come in yet where a financial advisor could actually offer those assets to their consumers, partly because the way financial advisors get paid is a little conflicted, right? With the way that alternative assets are created. I think the main innovation that I've seen lately is a lot of these alternative asset providers are working with the SEC to treat these as securities. Financial advisors can buy securities on behalf of their customers and put those and manage those in portfolios of assets. And so that's a major innovation that we've seen come into the alternative asset landscape that I think is going to be a catalyst for really growth, growth meaning more assets coming in and more people being aware that these are very interesting places to put your capital and see appreciation over time in a way that's not directly correlated to the public equities market, right? The public stocks. And that is huge for us, right? Because in times of high volatility that we're living in right now, in a bear market, right, that has a lot of uncertainty going on with where the Fed is moving and how they're trying to control the economy. If you put money in the public markets, it's 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 unstable in a lot of ways, right? I mean, just look at the performance over this year specifically across the Nasdaq down S&P down by at least 18%, if not up to 40%, right? Depending on the indice, which is pretty scary, right? For folks that are nearing retirement and need the capital that they have in their 401ks or in their IRAs. And so now that you can start investing in alternatives, whether it's 
cars, you know, with like Rally Road to real estate, like with Funrise, the fine wine and spirits with Vint, right? That really provides just diversity, right? For your capital and the returns that we saw, you know, in the early days and continue to see with Vint and the portfolio of assets that you're acquiring and managing for your customers are unbelievable, right? I mean, we were just hands down shocked and impressed at the great returns you're bringing back to your investors, especially in this market where most people are down dramatically. Yeah, the the points you're making about access, especially extending down to maybe middle-class portfolio retail investors, that idea of access for us also extends into high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals as well, because sure you have you know, just say, just use the commercial real estate. You have $10 million to acquire a piece of commercial real estate. Well, you need to have a pretty large port- overall portfolio to, you know, look someone in the face and be able to say that, yeah, I'm well diversified. Right. So, you know, even for our high net worth and ultra high net worth folks who are investing in our collections, you know, we have bottles that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but especially when you're talking about whiskey, it's very common. And yeah, it, it takes a large portfolio to be diversified. So I think it's like access on actually being being able to invest for retail invest or for middle class and retail investors, but then it's access in terms of efficient diversification, right? For our high net worth individuals. Re- That's yeah, right. two really, really important ways to um yeah, to shake up the market, I think. Yeah. I think you had yeah. Yeah, another nail on the head with I mean, the SEC, and I, I know you've probably talked to Nick about this at you know, nauseum, but when, when he first pitched the idea to me, that was kind of a, a change that I hadn't seen. He wasn't trying to do it, you know, with a crypto thing that was, you know, potentially very effective, but not as, you know, had its own adoption or any sort of credibility along with it. Like the, the SEC portion, along with the expertly managed kind of portfolios, it's like what you were going back with some of these industrial, you know, real estate projects, projects is like, you know, getting the most out of that requires a team that knows kind of what they're doing. And to your point, like we we have myself and Adam, mainly, you know, especially Adam, able to kind of bring mm-hmm. his decades of experience on definitely separates us in a sense and that we're also very hands on with managing these collections. Well, I think it, it also gives you access to some of the best assets in the market, right? Because mm-hmm. This is somewhat of an offline industry in a lot of ways, right? And so having the relationships to find the collections or build the collections, you know, the everyday investor would never even have access to that, right? And even the sophisticated investor that is a part of the industry, right? I mean, it's it's all about, you know, being in the know at that point in time, but then having kind of the fiduciary responsibility of knowing when to sell that collection, right? To return the best possible returns to your investors. And so having that as kind of a financial platform makes a lot of sense. You know, the, I mean, the other area that I'm not sure if, I think you guys have had a, a show on this, is just the futures product that you guys are are testing in the market. I think it's fascinating because, you know, one of the the core areas that we look for is true financial innovation with new products that are being created that provide access. <coughs> Excuse me. Um 
And so, you know, futures are incredibly well known throughout, you know, wines through throughout France and Italy and the broader European regions where, you know, as soon as those grapes are, are picked and put in barrel, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to score consistently with previous vintages. So why not, you know, allow your customers to buy a future right on, on that bottle or that collection or that vintage, and they can choose to sell the future at a certain point in time, or they can choose to take possession of the asset once it's, once it's it's ready for for retail. Why hasn't that existed here in the states? Right, it makes no sense. Domestic producers, right, are consistently producing hundred plus point wines that are deemed collectible. Right, that'll age incredibly well for 20, 30, 40 years and be investment caliber assets. And so, the fact that you guys have brought that innovation. To the market, I think is a massive opportunity, one for investors, but more importantly for producers, right? I mean, as I mentioned before, to make a you know small fortune, you got to start with a big one. It's incredibly labor intensive and cost intensive to build a winery that produces Cabernets, right? Cabernet Sauvignons typically need a three-year period, right? From, from being picked to being, you know, available and ready to drink in the bottle. And some would argue it could even be 10 years, right? More time in the bottle, more settlement, you know, more, more age and, and beauty coming out. That's incredibly cash restrictive and intensive for these wineries. And so if you could provide U.S. boutique producers, right, folks that are in the 1,000 to 5,000 case production, right, mainly family owned, very small, you know, personally financed, the ability to pre-sell like one vintage or two vintages in advance and factor that money forward, you're just going to help the overarching industry continue to expand, right? And meet meet the demands of the end consumer. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of a lot of great points. And the opportunity in the US is so different than say even like Italy or Spain, some of these areas where you have five year requirements to, you know, age a reserva. Right. But the, the difference is those families have owned those properties for probably hundreds of years, maybe. So they're able to do that because they're not having to pay off mortgages or buying fruit or That's right. the new cost of a winery. So I, I think there's actually old world opportunity with these people still, but then there's also that new world opportunity, mm. as you were saying, with some of these either up and coming or people trying to just raise their their quality or even shifting over to biodynamics or organic farming. Mm. You need that capital up front. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I, I will now since we've, we've we're almost you know close to forty five minutes. Let's maybe take one more step back to your to the wine side of things. One, I guess, have you aged any of your wines ten years? Do you have any of that original vintage that you guys are gonna crack and see how it's looking? Yeah, so so it's interesting. When we started, we literally said, "Hey, let's make you know let's let's do a ton of grapes, right? Let's start you know pretty small, you know. Let's find a great winemaker who can open up access to us and and find you know great land with great fruit. And so we only produced fifty cases, right, in our first vintage. As we roll out new vineyards, right, which we have something called our signature series, which is single vineyard, just cabernets. We only produce fifty cases of each new single vineyard. And then obviously if it does well, we, we double down and continue to grow. And so our 2014 vintage was our first vintage. And we, we did hold a little bit back in reserves, thank God. But we only have like, literally, I think we have like 80 bottles left in our library. Most of it sold out in, in three weeks. And we basically just had to stop sales and say, hey, we need to hold on to this because one, it's a beautiful 
you know, just elegant, sophisticated wine. 2014 was a was a great year for us. And two, it was our first vintage, right? And so we want to be able to 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 see it age over time and you know continue to to just keep unpacking what's in that bottle. Yeah, that'll be exciting in a couple of years. And then out of personal interest, what what kind of wines were you making with your grandfather? When I first moved here, I made a hundred pounds of Zinfandel in a tub in my apartment. So I'm kind of curious what you guys okay. were able to get your hands on. Yeah. <laughs> so so my grandfather came from northern Italy when he was eleven years old through Ellis Island. You know, they they renamed him, did all the stuff that they used to do back in the day. And so my grandfather Joseph Regini came over here and, and settled down in San Francisco and you know did did well as an engineer I and mean, was able to buy some land in this area called Emerald Hills, which is kind of right in between like Rebbit City and Woodside off the 280, and bought a good amount of property, right? And and what did he do at that point? He planted some fruit trees, he grew some orchids and he planted grapes because that's what his family did historically back in, in Italy. So it was just cheap Italian jug wine that we would put in Carlo Rossi kind of huge like bottles and he would drink it with his friends. But we actually beneath our garage had a cellar with winemaking equipment, just old, you know, vintage winemaking equipment that we actually, when my grandfather passed, we donated it to another local winery that currently has it on display and, and kind of continues the tradition. It's non, non-functional, but, you know, he just liked to make what he enjoyed. Myself and my partners at Unwritten, we just love Cabernet Sauvignon as a fruit and a varietal. And so that's what we make. We may expand down the road into, into other varietals, but the challenge is, is most people make cabs jump into making a Chardonnay because they want to get a, a white varietal up and running. But the cab market is overexposed. The Chardonnay market's even more overexposed. And so, you know, what's an interesting, unique varietal that may be new to the States or, or you know, not well known that you can kind of build, you know, a brand off of. And so we haven't come to a decision yet on that. We decided to kind of double down on additional vineyards and keep growing our brand that way, staying true to making just a, a simple yet elegant Cabernet. So, so do you guys own... The winemaking space and any plots actually, or do you just source fruit each year from different vineyards and kind of do custom crush or how does it work? Yeah. So we have long-term leases on vineyards that we work with folks that own the land and farm the land. Mm -hmm. And by having a lease, it enables your winemaker. Mark Pornbisky is our winemaker. He's been our winemaker from day one. He also makes Anomaly, which is an amazing boutique, you know, Cabernet up in in St. Helena. He's one of the band of vintners, right? Which there's like 10 vintners that come together that just buy juice and create an amazing wine that's distributed. And then he's also runs with his wife, Zeitgeist Cellars, which is a fantastic boutique label that he has. So anyways, we it's very expensive to buy land in Napa. And it also is quite challenging at times, right? Especially with the fires and, and drought and we had a frost this last season. And so leasing land gives you the same control over the growing conditions, but alleviates a little bit of those, you know, just exhaustive and extensive kind of financial contributions that have to be made. We produced, we used to produce at a, a small winery called Boshin in St. Helena. As we grew and got larger, we moved over to Cuvée Saint in Napa and produce there. So it gives us optionality to, to grow and, and be able to have access to great facilities. Nice. Yeah, I think that's probably the most cost efficient way to way to do it and the way to get the best quality by leasing and being able to manage some of those farming and picking, you know, all that jazz. So nice. Exactly. 
Yeah. Every vintage literally is unwritten, right? I mean, this was a great vintage, 2022. It was smaller than expected, partly because it snowed in St. Helena, like literally, which you wouldn't expect. We had crazy frosts up on Howe Mountain that we did not plan for or expect. We didn't have any fires, which was great. So no smoke taint. But, you know, previous years, right, we had horrific fires, you know. And so it's like literally whatever Mother Nature gives you. We, I don't want to say that we're, you know, organic or, or any of these, you know, terms that are going around, but we do not alter our wines. We do not, you know, alter them after the fact with various different kind of, you know, ways of pushing flavor oak in. We choose the best barrels possible, Darnajou and, and Terence Cooperages. We choose the best fruit. We have, you know, a winemaking style that literally highlights everything that Mother Nature gave us in that vintage, so that every unwritten vintage is unique, does not taste the same year over year. Some wineries like consistency, right? If they're big from a distribution standpoint and, and restaurants and consumers want that glass to taste the same every single time they taste it, that's not us, right? We're boutique. We highlight mother nature and every vintage is completely unique. Nice. So last nerdy Napa question. Did you guys pick when the heat wave came at like Labor Day or did you guys wait it out until October? Yeah. So this was a, a doozy of a vintage, right? So by having three different parcels spread throughout Napa Valley, typically, you know, they're, they're usually spread at least a week or two, right? From pick, we picked every single vineyard on the same day. Wow. Uh, it was just nuts. We went from 2 a.m. all the way to like 4 p.m. Just picking different crews, right? But like, we were we were shocked, but you had to get that fruit off the vine because brick levels were, were rising and you really wanted to have a great vintage to work with. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to have the resources needed to pick every single grape on a single day spread throughout Napa Valley. But it was interesting. I mean, even folks in Calistoga were still picking two weeks ago, whereas we picked everything, you know, pretty much late September. Nice. Yeah, I knew there, there was like, two ways there was the heat and then people picked and then there was also rain and then people had to wait longer to kind of let that all work through yeah so, cool well definitely we'll have to seek some of these bottles out and try i know brady's a, a big napa napa stand here he always is representing we'll have to give these ones a shot well, we, we need to do a vint offsite or board meeting up in up in napa and we can use one of our companies melier which basically partners up with boutique wineries to offer distribution access and pairing food and wine so melier could do a really fun event for us all oh that that would be great i can't believe billy missed out on pushing you on what are the variety varieties on your short list list man i can't speak Varieties on your short list for this kind of adding to your Cabernet portfolio. Do you have, can you yeah. give us three? Or are you not allowed to disclose yet? You know, it's it's tough. I don't I don't have three on my short list right now, to be totally okay. honest with you. There is, you know, two that my winemaker has been working with for a while that I think are just breathtaking unique. One is called Trousseau Gris, which is like a gray Riesling, which is honestly the perfect summer white wine. It's not too grassy or green like a Sauvignon Blanc. It's not oaky or buttery like a Chardonnay. It's just beautiful, crisp, drinkable. The other is Chenin Blanc, right? Our winemaker's been making Chenin Blanc for a while. And I think it's just, you know, an amazing, amazing white varietal. Now, 
we want to do something unique at Unwritten. And so, you know, I, I don't want to just, you know, produce those two because our winemaker is a master at them. I want to, you know, he wants to be challenged a little bit more and, and find something unique that, you know, folks don't know. The challenge is, is do you want to set a trend? And get others to follow? And can you find growers, right, that, you know, have great pieces of property with, you know, vines that have been growing for enough years to produce an amazing wine? Let me know if you want to source some East Coast knot. Well, um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> <break them. laughs> there you go. Nice. Good. Well, well, thank, well, thank you, you. This has been fun. Yeah, no, this has been fascinating. And yeah, pretty I want to talk more about the other varietals, but I want to save our listeners another hour. So thank you so much for your time and, and we appreciate you coming up. All right. Thank you both. That was our interview with Matt Murphy of Montage Ventures. Thank you all for your support thus far in 2022. And we hope to continue to see you around the platform as we grow and innovate and, and change the wine investing space. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.